0: This podcast was recorded on January 5th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: Welcome to the second episode of the 2018 version of the Sherman Show. I'm here with my longtime co host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, we, uh, for the second episode, uh, we're bringing back in uh, someone from Double Line, and we have with us today Ryan Kimmel from the Macro Asset Allegation team. Woohoo. How you guys doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so thanks for being here, Ryan. So, Ryan, the thing is, a lot of people, we don't let you really face externally a lot to a lot of clients and things. We keep you kind of locked down and uh, running all our macro analysis out there. Although I'm not sure why we don't put you out. Right, so let's, uh, this is your, your time to shine. Tell us about yourself. You know, tell us, uh, where'd you grow up? Let's just start there. Okay,
2: so I grew up in a small town on the northern Jersey Shore, or Rumson, in uh, Monmouth County. And back in, in the 90s, I w- you know, the only thing I really thought about was, was surfing.
1: So you weren't born in the 90s, just to be clear. You, were, this I was is, not, you grew I'm, up in the 90s. I'm an, I'm an 80s baby. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. So you are a millennial.
2: I am, yeah. I am on the tail end of the millennials, I guess. Or the front end of the millennials. The front end,
1: yeah. right. So you, you, you th- all you thought about was surfing. So what does that mean?
2: Let's go through my, my background. I, it's, I guess it's pretty uh, unique and not, not many people that work in finance have taken... The path that that I that I've taken, and um, you know, if I I could go back and talk to my my 17 year old self and say, you know, tell him what I, I'm doing currently, he'd be like, "What is that?" and <laughs> ha- "How how did that happen?" So, you know, back in high school and in the, in the 90s, I was solely focused on surfing, doing the amateur amateur competitions along the East Coast.
1: When did you start entering the Ams?
2: I started in 96. Okay. Did my, my first contest when I was a freshman in high school?
3: Okay, so we're talking about real surfing, not like the people. A lot of the people that you know live in LA and claim to surf and they, you know, maybe paddleboard at best. Exactly, right, so. exactly.
2: Yeah. I, I don't consider paddleboarding uh, surfing. Actually, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, Vitaly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I my, did my first contest when I was a freshman in high school. I actually made the finals, my, my first ever contest. So I got the bug really quick. And throughout high school, basically solely focused on becoming a pro surfer. That so you,
1: every day. Every,
2: uh, well, in, in Jersey, you right. can't surf every day. And None it's the bomb frigid cycle, in the wintertime, as you can imagine. But, you know, you know we're having a, a cold snap there. Like, I would surf in, you know, 20-degree weather um, with water in the low 30s. <laughs> so uh, it takes commitment. But yes, yeah, so through my high school career, I was surfing uh, in the amateur competitions, and you know it started to get some some traction. I started to get some sponsorships, uh, amateur sponsorships, just getting free stuff. Free stuff's good though. Yeah, right? free I mean, stuff's yeah, nice. Yeah.
1: Then my so you are a millennial, right? You know you like the free stuff. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah.
2: Always looking for a discount. <laughs> and uh, so my senior year, pivotal moment came. East Coast Championships. I win them. I win the open men's division. And basically, that kind of locked my, my pro career in place. I signed my first professional contract with No Fear right before I got No graduated. Fear of the
1: company. Yeah. I remember the
2: remember, shirts remember and everything. Yeah, no right. Um, yeah. Yeah. They were pretty popular in the 90s, yeah. you know, like second place is the first loser t-shirts.
1: Yeah. Right. I remember always the baseball <laughs> one, like bottom of the nine. Exactly. Two outs, basically yeah. out down three. No Fear, right? Yeah. So, okay. So, you, you, you sign your contract. You ink your first deal. Big signing bonus, got some sponsorship here. So what, what do you do from there? So you, now you're a professional surfer.
2: First thing I do is move out of New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> so I moved to Southern California, okay. to, to San Clemente. That's basically where the, the surf industry is centered. And from that point on, I used Southern, Southern California as, as my kind of my home base and uh, you know it's close to the airport all the companies are out there and i was doing the the professional tour the the world qualifying series is okay what it's called and i had you know i had some success i think the highest i was ranked was in you know 80th but thankfully how and, many
1: professional surfers are there typically on this tour
2: i'd say there's probably 300 okay okay yeah and it's, it's So global. you're right
1: at that top quartile, right? Yeah, and, and it's, it's, close it's, to
2: it. it's the best surfers from around the world. The world, world right, yeah. yeah. So you got the best Australians, you got the best Brazilians, the best Europeans. So it was definitely very definitely very challenging. The great part was I got to travel the world, you know, from a young age. And I kind of had to grow up quick. You know, I had to manage my own career. I didn't have an agent, so I didn't negotiate my own contracts. Only the top, you know, top-tier guys, the top ten guys had their own agents to, to negotiate on their behalf so you had to grow up you kind of had to create your own image and brand yourself which i think kind of helped me out throughout my the rest of my career is that i had to mature pretty quickly and um thankfully you know a couple years in i came you know came to the conclusion which i when looking back i can't imma- imagine a, a Twenty-year-old doing this, but I was like, you know what? I should probably go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) And um, looking back, it was the best decision I ever made. But um, you know, I I started uh, taking night classes at uh, Santa Monica College, and um, California has a great program where if you basically accomplish all these these uh, classes, these general education classes with you know a a pluses, you you can transfer to the school of your choice. So. Took me two years, did, did night classes, was still per- surfing professionally, um, which was a bit of a challenge. Uh, you know, a lot of night night classes, a lot of internet classes, <clears throat> but eventually transferred to UCLA mm-hmm. uh, with a major in business economics. At, at that point, um, I decided, you know, I wanted to do something in finance. Uh, I really liked economics. I liked, you know, basically learning about how the world operates, you know, incentive structures and, and whatnot. And investment banking seemed kind of the, the right choice. One thing was, you know, I'm, I'm a competitive person, and it was a very competitive position to get. So I was like, oh, I, I should try and get that. I should try and do that. So I landed a in- summer internship at Morgan Stanley in their mergers and acquisitions department in the summer of 2007.
3: Where is that based at? Which, uh, location? Out of Century City okay. here
2: in Los Angeles. And was able to manage that into a full time full time position uh, upon graduation in two thousand so, <laughs> and eight. So you know well, at least you got in in yeah, know, right? Yeah,
1: straight into the uh, straight into the fireworks. Right. So that was like a traditional graduation, like a May, June graduation, start your full time first, first gig. And here we go, right? Yeah,
2: financial world is collapsing as I'm, as I'm entering the entering the the market. So, did you end
1: up uh, joining the mergers and acquisitions team? I did. A, I did so as, a, as a generalist. No, no, really good M A activity at the time that month, right? Exactly.
2: But okay. you know, they were still churning out work, trying to get prospective deals done. And I think my time as an analyst at Morgan Stanley was was very crucial for me. You know, it teaches you attention to detail working through PowerPoints, making sure there's no mistakes, making sure your spreadsheets are, are in good condition and you can actually pass them over to another analyst if they begin working on a project and work ethic. I mean, I, an, an investment banking analyst, you get crushed.
3: What kind of hours were you putting in on PowerPoint especially, right? I hear it's a lot of PowerPoint work as Yeah, a, you're
2: in PowerPoint and Excel all the time. And I, I was probably putting in- You don't get paid by the hour either, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was probably put in, at least, you know, at least eighty hours a week. Um, so about the same as now. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, everything after that felt um, relatively easy um, as, as far as the, the work commitment, and it was it was definitely. Um, I think we, you can do that kind of stuff when you're younger, but it becomes much more difficult when you get older and have, have yeah. A family. So
1: so let's you, you start off as a surfer, then you uh, kind of uh, you know tried to focus on some career here m a wh- wh- how did you get from that side to kind of the buy side of the business? So, you know, the, the, being on the sell side, sure. challenging, has its own thing. Um, what made you kind of think about leaving that role and, and transitioning on to something else?
2: Sure. So as we mentioned before, it was, it was 2008 and all the Im- investment banks, you know, were, looked like they could fold at, at, at any moment. I think at one point Morgan Stanley looked like it was the next, you know, shoe to drop towards the you know, Q4 of, 2000, of 2008. And, and as you can imagine, like, deal flow dried up, but we we're still churning out work. And I was really interested in markets. I mean, there was a lot of fireworks and volatility going on in the financial markets. And we were more project-based, more deal-based, much more micro. And I really wanted to dabble in, in, in markets. And I decided to leave Morgan Stanley the following year and ended up at this hedge fund, or proprietary trading firm called the Gelber Group. Uh, they're based out of Chicago. And we were primarily focused on trading currencies. It was relatively high-frequency trading, not, you know, your millisecond trading, but um, multiple trades per day. Uh, I think my average holding time was eight minutes. So in and out, very discretionary. And, you know, what it taught me was managing a P&L. Mm-hmm. And managing a PNL that's scrutinized by by someone else, by right, your by man, partners, yeah. by partners <laughs> right. um, which I think is entirely different
1: than you know managing your PA, mm-hmm. uh, for instance. PA for those listeners, your personal account. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, not only does uh, Mr. Kimmel here have a lot of surfer jargon, he uses a lot of financial jargon, so we step in and try <laughs> to find it every once in a while. So you're high frequency trading. You're holding things for an eternity, about eight minutes, right? <laughs> and you're again, it sounds like you're in this highly intensive uh, kind of work uh, focus, right? So what did, what was different about that and being in this eighty hour week project management deal flow? Now, I mean, granted, currency markets. How long were you trading the other day? Were you were you not just trading U.S. market hours? I assume. Uh, what was an average work day for you when you were trading this own P and L on the currency side?
2: yeah so it's it's entirely different from my previous job i mean the day basically condenses, but I guess the stress level would stay the same heightened uh heightened level so basically we would be trading the London and New York overlap, which you know starts around four thirty a m west coast time and generally goes to mid morning ten a m uh, on the west coast uh but you generally stick around for you know a few more hours throughout the day just to if any you know news bombs came out. But, you know, what we were doing was, you know, trying to take advantage of the liquidity that we, we had at the firm. The Gelber Group spent a tremendous amount of money and resources on building our trading platform. And we had probably the best liquidity on the street to trade FX. And, you know, we'd be able to execute trades in and out during some of the most volatile periods. I mean, one one particular period I can remember is the 2009 flash crash i don't know if, remember if you guys remember that the dow was down like a thousand points at one point dollar point. Dollar yen had just tanked and i'd only been on the job for like a few months and i was a little bit shell-shocked at that point but um you know a lot of the guys the, the guys with more experience faded that move and uh ended up making some good money on that day um even when the, the price action went against them for some period of time but had it had to hold
1: a little longer than eight minutes
2: they did. They did. It. Probably an hour. <laughs> okay.
1: That's a stressful hour, though, when it's moving against yeah, you, right? Especially when you're trading large sums of money.
3: And we're always talking about anchoring, right? When you first start out and making your own trades, making your own investment decisions, your first year is probably the one that has the most impact on the rest of your career because that's where your anchor that your expectations are anchored based on that. So you've gotten that out of the way now, and time to move on for less volatile, you know, relatively less volatile times. Hopefully, right?
2: Yeah. Exactly. And you know I think another crucial component of my time at the Gelber group is regardless of the trade is eight minutes or you know a few months to to a few years the same the same rules are still in place right you have to have your stop losses you have to be able to manage the risk of your of your portfolio and and sizing is extremely important when when gauging how you know how how much room am I willing to let this this trade go against me and then and then on the other side, like how where, where where am I targeting to get out? And I think you know that that transcends whatever the the holding period for for a particular trade
1: is. Is there any way to equate that to surfing and look at the wave and you know how, the entry point? And uh, I I, I, I want to bring some elaborate you know metaphor here to that. Anything you'd learned in surfing that kind of helped <laughs> you with? Um, thinking about that, uh, the, the entry point, the maybe exit. the cycles, right? right, right yeah, the wave I mean, cycles. it seems to be something there,
2: right? I, I'm happy you asked me that because I've I've constantly been
1: pondering. This is not pre-scripted, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm
2: constantly like pondering that in my head, and I do see a lot of similarities between the ocean and financial markets. To someone that has no experience in in, in the ocean, it looks random on a on a stormy day, right? And at the same time, financial markets just look random to to people that are are not experienced. but the best surfers somehow figure out a way to find the the best waves out there and, and can put together if it 's a competition uh, you know a high scoring wave uh, you know kelly slater was was famous for this the the ocean would look just like a mess, and he would come out and, and get a 10 where the other guy didn't even catch a wave so you know the best surfers figure out a way to to shine when the markets are more more ter- when the oceans more turbulent in the same way the best the best investors out there the best traders figure out a way to to make money when there's more volatility and uh, i think i think that says something where you know when the markets are more volatile you know that's where you have your opportunities and that's where the guys with the most experience you know, they shine and, and
1: produce that alpha. I, I would I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's really easy to make money in low vol markets. Everybody gets lulled in complacency, and everybody thinks they're the superstar, and it's it's the old adage, you know, don't confuse the bull market with skill, right? Um, the skill comes when there is the turbulence and things. So well, how did you leave this Gilbert Group? What happened?
2: So I decided after three years at the Gilbert Group, I decided that I wanted to do something a little bit more more fundamental, I guess you'd say, and basically continue my, my um, education. So I decided to go to business school. I uh, went to UCLA business school. And during that time, I actually took up an internship at a fund of funds that specialized in global macro hedge fund managers. And at the same time, I also uh, met Sam Garza at a hedge a macro hedge fund dinner. And we got to talking and eventually... I started working for him as an intern um, in the multi-asset growth strategy. And then after a few years of uh, schooling, I locked that into a full-time position at DoubleLine in in the
1: multi-asset growth fund. So you were our first hire in the macro team. You know, I I recall that. That was a long internship too, if I recall too. It
2: was a long one. And you know, but eventually uh, we were able to to, to turn into a full-time gig.
1: So, d- describe to me now when you talk about macro and you know working on our macro strategy, how you think about the world today. Like how how do you come up with the framework for thinking about the investing in the global economy? Because you know when people talk about funds, you know macro hedge funds, these sounds these things sound so great, but then sometimes you can get to the point where we call it analysis paralysis, right? There's so many things you do because you can do anything. Uh, how do you try to set a framework for thinking about investing in the global economy when you have the ability to buy essentially every single asset class?
2: Sure, that's a, that's a very good question. And, you know, the way we we break it down, we we think of it in three key components to, to our investment process and how how we look at the world. And, you know, the first one is a very top down approach. And this is what we call our strategic asset allocation framework. And, basically under this framework we're looking to identify you know what is the growth and in inflation outlook and you know how how should we position the portfolio given our view on growth and inflation we've done some some good work on on how different how asset classes perform during these different regimes and you know what we come away with is you know in in low growth regimes you want to underweight equities and in in higher growth regimes, stable to high growth regimes, you want to be fully allocated to to equities and have have that beta exposure. On the inflation side, obviously duration is driven much more by by inflation. So as you can imagine, it's a bit you know intuitive uh, when you're in a in a reflationary environment you're going to be under wanna be underweight duration. And when you're in a disinflationary environment you're going to want to be overweight duration. So we're basically given our views on, on growth and inflation. We're toggling our equity beta and, and toggling our, our interest rate risk. Yep.
1: So I, I like to use the phrase or the word reflation. Reflation is a nice way of saying inflation because we're we're having a reflationary thing, but it just means inflation's increasing. But people get scared by inflation. But you make it sound so nice when it's reflation. So um, you know, given where we are today, and you know, kind of uh, people are saying perhaps this is the year of reflation, as you call it, or actually starting to see some inflationary type of scares, or at least a push up. Uh, Maybe the Fed actually achieves its target at some point this year and actually gets that number. Um, How do you think about um, positioning and playing for that? Sure. And and as
2: you mentioned, we are seeing some signs that inflationary pressures will be be picking up over the medium term. And, you know, obviously, the People have been saying that for quite a long time now. What we're looking at now, you know, we're seeing, you know, PMIs, uh, things that tend
1: to lead. uh, These are manufacturing surveys, right? The things that measure manufacturing activity. I told you I'm going to define stuff. You're a jargony guy. Sorry. (laughs) It's okay.
2: (laughs) Um, Manufacturing survey data, um, economic activity, uh, GDP, which is also economic activity, uh, leading indicators, price surveys. These are all signaling that inflation should start to pick up over, over the next uh, coming quarters. And we're very long in this economic cycle. And work we've done shows that typically at this point in the economic cycle, we should start to see prices Increasing.
1: Yeah, it's something you guys have done really well. Is Let's is, is look at this and say that, you know, usually at the last leg of the cycle, there is this push up in inflation. And that's usually coupled with the Fed getting aggressive, hiking rates. And ultimately, everybody blames the Fed. Uh, but maybe it is because we go on this inflationary boom to the end. I, I thought that's some uh, interesting work you guys have been doing recently and um, kind of augurs well for, you know, some of these inflation. Uh, at least sectors that are kind of infla- uh, benefit from inflation. So, what are those kind of things that you would say that if you were seeing that, where would you want to start to overweight or add to portfolios as you think about your your macro framework one? But then to position for this inflation, because I, I, I got to say, a lot of people haven't seen inflation in their careers. I'm gonna say you probably haven't really seen it much either. You didn't even get in the the raw raw 2000s where we actually had real inflation numbers. Um, so, um, how about how are you gonna position that for the first time in your career when you see it? <laughs> so yeah
2: yeah we ha- you know I, I'm I'm on the younger side so yeah. I haven't seen an inflationary environment. So you know what can I do? I can you know, look back in in time and see you know what happened under certain uh, reflationary environments. And what we notice is that, you know, obviously you want to be underweight duration. Bonds do not perform well under under that particular environment. You're going to want to be long tips.
1: So tips are inflation-linked bonds, right? So they benefit from higher inflation.
2: Yes, and inflation swaps are also a very... Very interesting way to take advantage of this regime. So, inflation swaps are a way or a derivative that you can use to basically get exposure to the level of realized inflation out there. Right. So, it's the
1: difference between expected inflation, realized inflation, simply going long tip short treasuries, right? Exactly. Moments,
2: right? Exactly. And commodities should do very well in, in a reflationary environment. So, you'd want to be long commodity link equities. The energy sector should should do particularly well. You're going to want to be underweight duration proxies like utilities and REITs, mm-hmm. financials should do generally well in, in a reflationary environment. That's what you saw at the end of 2016 when, when nominal yields rallied, rise significantly. Banks, the banking sector did extremely well. Um, so that from a cross-asset perspective, that's how you'd want to position your Portfolio, and that's how you'd want to basically deviate from your, your prospective benchmark.
1: Yeah.
3: One thing that you didn't mention in there, in that an assortment of assets is uh, equities. How, how would that play into the positioning at this point in time if we are seeing this uh, reflation occur?
2: So, as I mentioned before, growth is more important for, for equities and, and their performance. So, if you could be in an inflationary environment and equities can do well the The type of environment that wouldn't work is a stagflationary environment where you have high high inflation and, and low growth. Those are that's a time when you don't want to be allocated equities. You want to be underweight there. Uh, typically, in a stagflationary environment, you want to be long real assets. Yeah. Those are the best hedges. Yeah,
1: I think too, when you start to look at some of the economic data, it's not just the CPI or the, the inflation measure that most people look at, but also you got to look at pricing inputs. So you'd mentioned commodities, which um, have done well really for the last seven or eight months, specifically since September. But also when you think about the positioning and, and how to do that, there's price inputs going in the PPI, right? And at some, some point that has to either be passed on, or it has to erode margins. And I think that's the other thing where equities can be challenged too, is that if it's margin erosion, where they don't feel like they have enough pricing better pass on the consumer, it has to get eaten up somewhere. Um, And I think we've seen some of those those signs there too. So we've talked about a little bit of equity, a little bit of bonds, macro framework. Let's just talk about FX though, you know? So what do you guys do on the FX side? What are you thinking about um, as you look in 2018? Uh, what looks interesting, and uh, let's let's use holding periods that are longer than eight minutes. Though, um, again, uh, we we take a little more longer view than you used to in your other career. But um, what what are you thinking about on the FX side? What do you think about the dollar uh, and the likes?
2: Yeah, the the currency dynamics pretty interesting now. I'd say our conviction level is a bit lower than it was, say, at the beginning of last year, where we were uh, pretty contrarian on our bearish dollar view. At the, if you can remember back in you know, the January of 2017 the street was massively bullish the dollar. The new administration was going to implement all these pro-growth measures that would, you know, boost boost interest rate differentials and prop up the dollar. You'd have the Fed tightening and meanwhile the ECB is maintaining its quantitative easing program. But that was all basically priced in. Everyone was massively, you know, long the dollar. You could see it in positioning. Um so of course, opposite has to take place. Right. Uh, that's, the most pain was, you know, to the downside in the dollar, and, and that's what we saw. As we enter 2018, I think it becomes a little bit more clouded. There's a lot of cross-currents. I'd say our, our slight bias would be towards dollar downside. You're going to have the, and this is a, more of a medium-term outlook, you know, actually short positioning has been cleared out a bit on, on the dollar, um, looking at CFTC data. That's positioning in, in the, the FX futures markets. But basically, the market is priced for, for the Fed to hike, and no one is really expecting the ECB to do anything um, in, in 2018 as far as interest rate policy goes. But what's interesting is as you enter 2019, the dynamic changes. It is likely the ECB will be done with their, their bond buying program, and um, Draghi's term is up and we think that the environment could you know be in place where the ECB will likely start hiking probably not going to happen in 2018 but 2019 it seems like the ECB is going to start their, their, their hiking cycle. And what's interesting is if you look uh, it, what the market's pricing in right now is that the ECB is actually expected to hike more than the Fed is in 2019. So that, that creates kind of a, you know, a bullish environment for euro, mm. um, bearish environment for the dollar. So medium term, I, I think we're, you know, we're less constructive on the dollar.
3: Right. You know, we've talked a lot about identifying regimes, identifying you know, what may or may not work you know based on past information, you have all these different asset classes, different you know regions, different countries. How do you go from identi- you know identifying these to implementation execution how do you generate the ideas and then ultimately, how do you execute on it within the portfolios
2: yeah that 's a great question and and it's it was it 's very challenging too because we're you 're basically giving free reign to invest in anything, so you almost have to create some restrictions for yourself or where you have e- it's easy to identify which levers to to pull and uh, to take advantage of your particular views. So you almost have to have this this game plan for the different different economic regimes. The easiest way to explain kind of how ideas turn into, you know, portfolio construction would be the the weekly mag meetings that we have. And at these weekly mag meetings, the investment committee which is chaired by Jeffrey Gundlach, uh, the founder of Doubleline and uh, chief investment officer, we basically go through a 100-page slide book, which covers global macroeconomics uh, and most financial markets, equities, fixed income, currencies, commodities. And what we're trying to do is paint a picture of what the current environment is looking like, um, not just in the U.S., but globally. And at the end of these these meetings, we have this heat map, and we've basically distilled uh, you know the key asset classes that we have exposures to, and we try to create a bias it's It's relatively simple, but you know we have a scale of negative two to positive two on each particular asset class, and at the end of each meeting, we come up with a, a score basically for each asset class. and we come away with that meeting kind of knowing what our our biases are for for each each asset. So once we have, we just, you know, distilled our views, then we kind of have to figure out, you know, what is the best way to implement this into the portfolio? And, I know, a number of things we'll take, you know, have to consider, like, well, first of all, the, you know, our benchmark is 60% uh, global equities, 40% uh, global fixed income. So we have to deviate from from our, our benchmark. And based on what our score is for the particular asset class, we'll deviate from, from our benchmark. And at the same time we have you know opportunistic trades that we put on and you kind of consider those more of, more of an overlay and we're looking for trades that aren't really correlated to traditional asset classes like like equities and, and fixed income. And uh, it's really how how does how does that particular trade fit into the, the portfolio and um Obviously, you have to take into consideration, you know, how much risk you're willing to take for each trade. And that's basically it in a, in a, in a nutshell.
1: So you just have a weekly meeting, figure it out, and uh, try try to come up with ideas for the next week again, right? If you're doing, putting together 100 charts a week, I mean, it sounds like a, a a lot of different information. Um, so I think the you know, when I think about it, too, and the way we try to approach it all, it's keeping it somewhat simple, as you said. It does sound simple, but... Sometimes the beauty is in the simplicity. Um, you look at all these things, but you can get overwhelmed and it's trying to identify broad trends, ride them out uh, if you can identify them. But also, I think most importantly, you know, when I think about risk management, it's the inflection point, right? I always say that when we talk about macro is that you've got to ride the trends, but you also, if you can nail that inflection point and see when things are really turning, um, it, that's the chance that you can really exhibit that good risk management and, and kind of focus on generating those, you know, kind of uh, preservation of capital when there's a big downturn or something to that effect. So we're going to try, we were trying something new in 2018. Um, before we get to Sam's favorite part of the show, is, uh, you know, t- tell us something um, that you want to, the world to know about Ryan Kimmel and what you're doing here at Double Line.
3: I do a little creeping while you're thinking about. It, I can say I do a little creeping. The, you know everyone can't see obviously on the podcast, but uh, I just typed in Ryan Kimmel surfer and I came up with an assortment of photos here that uh, are lying on the table here. Yeah,
1: that doesn't look like good risk management. I See him about five <laughs> feet over a wave, holding it and smiling too. So, uh, but all right, well uh, maybe we'll we'll scrap that for the future guests too, <laughs> and uh, you know we'll move on to San's sand part of the show. But thanks thanks for stopping by. Ryan, I know it's a busy day here at the office. Thanks for having me. um, But uh, I'll let Sam introduce his favorite segment.
3: All right, Sherman says for the new year. Ryan, in case you're not familiar with it, I utter a phrase or a term. Or Actually, I I think I decided on the word term. So I'm going to say a term and then we're going to elicit the response from you. And uh, we alternate. I I say a word to Sherman, and then uh, short term after that. So with Mr. Sherman, yield curve. Steeper. Euro dollar. Mr. Kimmel. Higher. Wage inflation. waiting. Price inflation. Some signs. Mac and cheese. Comfort. Fried chicken. Not gluten-free. U.S. growth. Accelerating. Global growth? Pushing higher. Fiscal stimulus? Late. Financial conditions? Easy.
1: Favorite hobby? Podcast with Kimmel.
3: Point break with the Swayze or Point Break the remake? Definitely Swayze. Pipeline.
1: FBR. i wanted i wanted you to yell that one too
3: <laughs> pipeline um keystone pipeline dangerous all right and that's it
1: all right thanks everybody for tuning here hopefully gave you some insight in uh our residence uh surf expert and former <laughs> pro surfer ryan kimmel uh turned macro analyst and uh, a part of our macro allocation team uh, again, we, we prefer uh, to get any feedback from you guys. If you have any feedback, you want to ask Ryan any questions, uh, we have now developed a new address, a new email address for feedback. So send us all your criticism, uh, hate, um, your uh, admiration at ShermanShow at com. So again, if you have any feedback, Show, all one word, at DoubleLine.com. And uh, we can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and everywhere else that um, feeds into your phones these days. So, again, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back in a couple weeks uh, with Episode 3.
0: The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including and respectively, direct indirect or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed double line is not providing any financial economic legal accounting or tax advice in this podcast the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity the portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk but does not imply low risk copyright 2018 double line capital